Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. In this episode, what really makes a foreign fighter tick? We speak to one man who knows many of them well. That romantic notion that, wow, this is, I've, I've played Unstand Wolves, I've watched it on television, I've watched it on social media, played the games, I can come to a real war zone. More claims of war crimes in Ukraine, but what are the implications? It looks that we have violations of international taking uh, international humanitarian law during the last three weeks on the ground of Ukraine. And no extra cash for defence, so should there be an updated defence review? The poor cousin in defence over the last five, ten years has been our land forces. So, is Vladimir Putin under further pressure? The US president certainly thinks so. Now Putin's back against the wall. He wasn't anticipating the extent or strength of our unity. And the more his back is against the wall, the greater the severity of the tactics he may employ. Well, today, President Joe Biden has joined an extraordinary meeting of NATO leaders in Brussels, which is addressing the crisis and confirming more support for Ukraine. Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark has been following the latest developments. Uh, Michael, is Vladimir Putin still struggling? Uh, yes, he is. Uh, the Russian offensive has clearly stalled, <clears throat> and there's a lot of evidence that they're actually digging in. They're planting mines around some of their dispositions, which indicates they don't intend to move out of them in the near future, and that they are frightened of counterattacks. They, the Russians have accidentally released casualty figures, it seems, which are even higher than DOD figures, and it looks as if they've lost something like getting on for 10,000 dead, which suggests total casualty figures of 30 to 40,000, which is, is past Chechnya levels already, in effect, and is getting towards Afghan levels, which were reached after eight years. And then there's all sorts of other things. I mean, there's, there's clear reports now that uh, Makarev in the northwest of Kiev has been retaken by uh, the Ukrainians. They may have been retaking some areas around Mykolaiv in the south, in Berdyansk, there was good evidence that an alligator landing ship was blown up and two other uh, Rapucha ships had to leave because they were damaged. So it looks as if the Ukrainians managed an attack on ships in Berdyansk, which were landing uh, material for uh, to go about 50 miles uh, east to Mariupol. And to speak specifically about Mariupol, has the Russian success there been unexpected given those challenges elsewhere? The agony of Mariupol just goes on, but it's, it's come to become iconic now, um, both for what the Russians intend to show the rest of Ukraine can happen, and for the Ukrainians, it's I iconic now of their determination not to surrender at any cost. Well, this week, the Ukrainian government has called for more people from overseas to join its foreign legion. But a former British soldier who was embedded with fighters in the resistance efforts in Ukraine is advising anyone in the UK thinking of joining to consider it carefully. Martin Dunwoody served with the Regiment of Fusiliers. This is reality. This is not what you see in the movies. This is not what you'll have experienced in Iraq or, or Afghanistan. This is a completely different role, a different environment. Well, speaking in the Commons, the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace had already given this warning for serving soldiers and civilians wanting to join the fight. They will be breaking the law and they will be prosecuted when they return 
uh, for going absent without leave or deserting. Uh, for others, as the government's travel advices don't go to Ukraine, uh, we strongly discourage them from joining these forces. Well, Emil Gerson is a former Royal Marine who is now a documentary filmmaker who has been in the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, for several weeks and has spoken to many of the foreign fighters who've travelled to help fight the Russians. I asked him what motivated them. A lot of them have military experience, but there's also a lot of them that don't have military experience that are coming over. It's a mixed bag of characters that are turning up in country currently. Yeah, you say a mixed bag. What kind of people want to do this and what motivates them? I've spent over four years following volunteers. I made two feature documentaries on guys, uh, one documentary on guys who went to Iraq and Syria to fight ISIS, and then men that came to Ukraine previously for the last war. I know myself, I meet guys in bars back home who are still in the Marines and they're telling me, oh, we hear stories about Iraq and Afghanistan, we missed out on it. So that's the kind of thing, the guys who want to prove themselves. You've also got other military men who are extremely trained, who actually see this as a massive injustice and they see an opportunity to come to Ukraine and actually teach and train. And I've spent, spent a bit of time with guys that are doing a lot of training um, with the Ukrainian forces, teaching them ambush drills, teaching them sniping, just teaching them basics because Ukraine's been mobilised where martial law has been implemented for people between the age of 18 and 60. So a month ago, these people were civilians, and then they see this guy who served in the British military who's teaching them tactics that they really appreciate. You also have a lot of civilians that turn up who've got no military experience. One guy I met, he, he is, I won't use the word strange, but it was a bit odd. He, you could tell he's a gamer. And I even said to him, do you play Call of Duty? He goes, yeah, I love Call of Duty and stuff. And it's that, that romantic notion that, wow, this is, I've, I've played Unstand Wolves. I've watched it on television. I've watched it on social media. I've played the games. I can come to a real war zone and actually get involved. And they don't really understand what it actually entails because you don't know what war is like unless you experience war. You've also got your guys who are generally older men. They're potentially divorced, their kids are grown up, they're in dead-end jobs, and they see an opportunity to go, right, I'm going to reinvent myself, I'm going to go to a war zone, a, a new adventure. I'm just really interested, Emil, when you met that that guy who's a gamer into Call of Duty, what did you say to him? I can get away with being a bit more blunt with them um, than another journalist would, for example. And I just simply said to him, I go, do you understand the reality of war? That Are you prepared to die? And he's like, yeah, I'm prepared to die. And then when I... Obviously, anyone who's been in the forces and you go, you're prepared to die, you're like, of course I'm prepared to die because like, I do it for my, for my buddies, so I left them to the right of me. But when you've got this individual that turns up, doesn't really have a connection to the people here, and then he's telling me that he's prepared to die, you've got to think, what, what is your motive? And a lot of these volunteers that come to fight here, their motive's really personal. It's, for, it's, to, it's a, a self-motivation rather than for the collective and what's going on. I don't think they really care. They would use the the concept that we're fighting Russian aggression, but really they didn't care about Russian aggression. They didn't care about any other war that's gone on around the world. Um, they're just seeing it as an opportunity for them to fulfill something in their life. Um, really, a lot of these people are, are missing a void, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, is that you can see that they, they're avoiding things. They're running away mm. from the mundane life. Anyone who's left the military, even myself, I went into a bit of a depression after I left um, because you're trying to find your, your feet and go, where am I going? A few years ago, I was this guy. I was a sergeant in the Royal Marines. Now I'm a nobody. I can't get a job here. I can't do this. So I see that depression that kicks in with people. They want to go. They want to run off to avoid opening letters, to avoid their girlfriend or their wife moaning at them. And they come to a war zone and go, wow, I'm here now. What do you mean? The world's... I can forget about the real world. I'm now in this this new world as such of the war in Ukraine.
And have you got a sense, Emil, as to how many of the foreign fighters you're meeting have enlisted with the International Legion of Territorial Defence of Ukraine and how many are just going it alone? Even on social media, I'm getting targeted advertisement saying join the International Legion. I must fit into the demographics for them. Hmm. So a lot of these men are going through the process where they're contacting the embassy signing up and then moving over to Poland and into Lviv, for example. Um, and then they're being held in areas where they do their training and such and before they move on to go towards the frontline areas. In Lviv, it was, I think it was about 10 days ago, actually, a military base was targeted with eight rockets by the Russians where international volunteers were. They reported that three former UK Special Forces guys were killed. I haven't heard any names yet on who they were. But what they're doing is they're holding them in the rear and then training them up, doing a, like a due diligence vetting process before they push them out to their battalions. But at the same time, you've got some guys who don't want to be sat in Lviv because Lviv is massively in the west from where we are now, away from the war zone. Um, so some men are leapfrogging up to Kiev, where I am now, joining different groups and trying to get to the front line. So it's a mixture of how they're getting, getting out there. And do you get a feeling, Emil, that these foreign fighters are coming with their eyes open? We famously heard the Defence Secretary in his comments that it's, not, it's for the long haul and it's not about getting selfies on the front line. You'll meet guys who go, no cameras, don't film me, I don't want to go on the record and such. And generally the more professional guys that have actually done something in the military. The other guys that really haven't done much, they're the ones who are the selfie ones you want, is that virtual signal. I'd call it, who want to be seen with a Ukrainian flag behind them with that AK-47 um, or 74, just showing off to say, look, look where I am currently now. So, yeah, there is a lot of that, actually. You meet some guys who are very narcissistic. Some of them, well, not a lot, but some of these guys that you meet, you can tell they're telling lots of fibs about their previous military experience. A lot of these guys, they, they've got all the gear, no idea as such. It's, like I was saying, the majority of former British soldiers who are professional, who know what they're doing, are more in a training role here than actual fighting role. And um, so you describe such a, a wide group of people in terms of foreign fighters who are turning up from those who have military experience, to those who have none at all and just turn up on their own. How much of a difference do you think they're making? Are they a help or a hindrance? The majority of the Ukraine men that are fighting four weeks ago were just normal civilians. So really, in that, in that sense, I don't recommend anyone coming out here to fight personally. But I know what these international volunteers bring to the Ukrainians is morale. They see that, yeah, the world has been pumping weapons into Ukraine, but these, and no physical troops as such, because NATO hasn't been, isn't physically involved here. But they see these international volunteers like Brits, Americans, Europeans and such, and they, it gives them morale. So they're like, we're getting support. We're not supported directly by the government physically, but we're supported by these individuals that turn up here. So it's good for the morale of the Ukrainians that, that, um, that these volunteers are here. Are they a hindrance? I think really a lot of people talk about previous wars. We're talking about like history, First World War, Second World War, where men were mobilised very quickly, trained up, and then shipped out to frontline areas. And they made a difference, didn't they? Of course they did during these big campaigns. Are they going to make a difference here? I'd probably say, yeah, they will, actually, because what these men could do is tie up resources, um, checkpoints, other front lines where the actual real Ukrainian army can push on and do further operations, operations rather than ground holding. I, I sat with them a few days ago and a lot of them, they're talking about sabotage operations, how they're going to go sabotage, they're going to blow up bridges, thinking that they're some Second World War commandos, sniper teams that were going to go engage in um, Russian hierarchy and stuff. So a lot of them do have this 
fantasy of what's actually going on in this war. And anyone who served in war knows it's 90% sat around 10% of actual action. There was a military base in Lviv that was targeted where there was loads of volunteers. The reason that was probably targeted, and this is just opinion, is because they were posted on social media exactly where they were, and the Russians sent guided missiles in, and it killed a lot of men. That has sent a lot of men home now. Several hundred men have now decided that this war is not for me, it's actual real, and crossed back into Poland and Hungary to go home. Former Royal Marine turned filmmaker Emil Gesson speaking to me from Kiev. Well, as the war in Ukraine deepens, there have been many claims of war crimes being committed. Boris Johnson says Vladimir Putin has crossed a red line into barbarism. And two former prime ministers, Sir John Major and Gordon Brown, are among the growing number of people calling for an international tribunal to be set up along the lines of the Nuremberg trials. Historian Margaret Macmillan from the think tank LSE Ideas told BFBS SITREP all allegations should be properly investigated. I myself think it's important. I think it's not something that we perhaps can envisage at the moment because so much more has got to happen. But I think the idea that someone, and it shouldn't be just Putin, it should be the generals who ordered the attacks and and the admirals who ordered the attacks. Well, Dr. Maria Varaki is from the War Crimes Research Group at the Centre for War Studies, King's College, London. So what constitutes a war crime? Well, a war crime is a serious violation of international humanitarian law. International humanitarian law uh, is the body of international law that regulates the conduct of hostilities and the means and methods of warfare. So based on the reports that we have until now, being lawyers, you know, we can talk only about alleged war crimes until they are fully um, documented and uh, confirmed. It looks that we have violations of international taking uh, international humanitarian law during the last three weeks on the ground of Ukraine. What kind of violations are we talking about? Until now, we have seen targeting on civilians. One of the fundamental principles of international humanitarian law is the principle of distinction, that civilians and civilian objects cannot be targeted. Only combatants and military objectives can be targeted. Unfortunately, we have seen the type of attacks against civilian population and civilian infrastructure, such as hospitals, schools, and uh, and other um, uh, buildings, civilian buildings. We are talking about about indiscriminate attacks. This is also the, the prohibition of indiscriminatory attacks um, is another principle of international humanitarian law, the principle of proportionality, that attacks should not cause that excessive incidental, incidental civilian loss. We have seen many, many uh, uh, many violations of these fundamental intransgressible principles of international humanitarian law, unfortunately, during the last three weeks. And do you believe President Putin will ever be brought to justice and in what circumstances? For the time being, you know, as long as he's still in power with the current circumstances, with the, with the weaknesses of the international uh, system, not only the legal system, I don't think we are going to see that in the near future. But this is not an unlikely scenario. I cannot predict what will happen uh, in the future. We have seen that with President Milosevic. We have seen that with other leaders who have been brought before international tribunals. So I, will, I cannot exclude it. But I won't say that this is something that, as people usually demand that, to happen immediately or in the very near future. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Michael, do you have any doubt that war crimes are being committed? 
No, I think that uh, alleged war crimes, prima facie evidence of war crimes is occurring every day. I mean, as uh, Maria Varaki just said there, that the, the deliberate targeting of civilians is of itself a war crime. 100%, no question. <clears throat> the only thing that, that Russians could argue, and they would have to argue, is that all of these hospitals that they hit, all of these apartment blocks, all of these facilities that they've hit, were being used in some active way by Ukrainian armed forces, which made them into legitimate targets. And if you want to argue that in Mariupol, where 90% of the buildings have been flattened, um, then go ahead and try. The other thing Margaret Macmillan said that was really important is the Nuremberg tradition. And one of the most important things that comes out of the Nuremberg tradition is the argument that I was only obeying orders is no defence, is no defence. So mm. everybody, right down to the merest soldier on the ground is fully responsible for their actions and the point is you can argue well if i didn't do it they they would shoot me or i would be disciplined fine that's mitigating circumstances but it doesn't alter the fact that you committed the crime and it's very important that we get out there now in, in ways that we couldn't have 20 or 30 years ago that we get out there now to russian commanders and sub commanders and even russian ncos the fact that we are watching the world is watching social media is watching and to say you are obeying orders only will be no defense when all this stuff which is being preserved and, and archived when it turns up in the hague you will be pinpointed so does president putin or <clears throat> his soldiers actually care about these allegations i'm sure he doesn't himself and his soldiers probably don't think about it very much at the moment but one of the things that the west ought to be doing and i think we are now doing actually is making the war crimes issue a more active part of the campaign against the invasion of ukraine you know normally war crimes allegations are something that, that arise after a, a, a conflict they're sort of a post facto sort of phenomenon in this case now i think it's fairly unique we're talking about war crimes from day one and because of modern media, there is an ability to collect a great deal of evidence and all of what I call the, you know, the military train spotters out there, bless their cotton socks. They can look at a piece of video and they'll tell you a lot about it because they know this stuff and they're fascinated. And so all this material is coming in as it did for the Syria crisis. And it's all still there. It's all archived for some day when it goes in front of the ICC. And that's something which is a real a, a new phenomenon in this case of, of the war. And I think even if Putin doesn't care about it, we can start to make his commanders care about it. In the lead up to the Chancellor's spring statement this week, there were calls for an increase in spending on defence, but those calls were not heeded by Rishi Sunak. One of those asking for more cash was a former head of the army, General Lord Richard Dannett, who says the war in Ukraine has changed everything in terms of funding the military. Well, I think we have to accept where we are in the real world. And actually, the world has turned on its head since uh, Vladimir Putin decided to attack Ukraine. And you can't, you can't ignore that. I mean, I know that the Chancellor has got a huge number of other issues that he's got to deal with. But um, history is being rewritten as we speak. Uh, the Ukrainians are fighting an extraordinarily gritty war uh, on behalf of all Western nations. And we need to play our part and more in supporting them, but also facing down Putin's ambitions. I'm afraid that translates into either more money going into defence or actually rebalancing to a degree what's going on within defence at the present moment and rebalancing towards increasing and accelerating our land warfare programmes. Because the poor cousin in defence over the last five, ten years has been our land forces. 
Well, the Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy says the government needs to prioritise funding for the armed forces. In a, a full half hour's statement to the House of Commons, there was a deafening silence on defence and nothing on our armed forces that are uh, on the front line of NATO defending our allies on the eastern flank against further Russian aggression. Michael Clark, is Lord Dannett right? Is the Defence Review not out of date and at the very least there should be a reallocation of money? Well, I don't think the Defence Review is out of date, um, but it needs to be um, implemented probably with a different emphasis. I think he's right that we've got to reprioritise because, I mean, one thing this crisis has shown us uh, and reminded us is the rates of attrition. I mean, we gave the, um, we've given the Ukrainian armed forces all of our Enlor missiles, all that we had in the first phase, and they've used them up inside a month. So, mm. you know, was that, you know, were those stocks big enough if we ever had to go to war? Obviously not. So Rishi Sunak didn't announce more money for defence, but the UK is still the second biggest contributor to NATO after the United States. That does show we're taking it seriously. Yes, we are. I mean, and still, you know, Britain has an impressive defence capability and we still have world class, top of the range systems and training and personnel in more or less every area. But as we've been saying for years on this programme, we've maintained full spectrum capabilities at very low numbers. And we've argued about whether that is credible. Eventually the numbers get so small, it doesn't matter if it's world class if they simply can't fight for more than a fortnight. So here we are facing the attrition issue. Yes, we've got world class uh, uh, forces. Are they sustainable? And the answer is probably not. So is it right, is he right, John Healy, when he appears to say the government takes the armed forces for granted? Oh, yes, has done for years, has done for years. It always, uh, I mean, the government assumes that the armed forces will perform miracles of improvisation when we need them. And they do, they do. But they've performed miracles of improvisation in relatively small operations. You know, Iraq and Afghanistan were not really big operations. They were brigade-sized operations. They were division-sized in the war and then brigade-sized after that. If we had to put together, you know, division-sized operations on, gr- on the ground and full expeditionary air operations in the air, full operations. The fact is we couldn't keep it up for long enough. Michael, stay with us. Sixth United Kingdom Division was reformed on the 1st of August 2019. It was given a very special task to prepare and generate forces for Army Special Operations and unconventional warfare. It spearheads the Army's use of information and cyber operations, and at its heart are the new Ranger Regiments and 77th Brigade, which provide novel information warfare capabilities. Tim Cooper's been to exercise Halo Rise, a chance for those behind Div to showcase their progress and achievements so far. The Army, indeed the entire military, is adapting as never before to new threat domains like space and cyber, and more broadly to how technology will change the way operations are conducted. The integrated review with its future soldier concept showed the way forward, a way to think about the emerging threats and put into action how they're dealt with. Sixth Division is right at the heart of this change. It orchestrates intelligence, information and partner operations and conducts cyber and electronic warfare activities. Since December 2021, it's been the home to the Army's new Ranger Regiments, designed to be used for unconventional warfare. I spoke to the General Officer Commanding Sixth Division, Major General Jez Strickland, and asked him what progress was being made. So the Sixth Division is on a journey uh, and it's made tremendous progress in its short time of existence. Uh, What we're doing is we're trying to build an unconventional operations capability for the Army and for defence. What we've done is we've put together a number of units that have come together to bring specialist skills and capabilities to allow us to start to create that 
uh, for the wider community. Yes, most notable of those, I mean, they're all notable in their own way and in their own area, but the rangers have, have hit the headlines, as it were, forming up. And they, what we are hearing today, very much fit in with a, a, a very special niche within the army and within border defence. Yeah, the ranger regiment is a really important part of this division. Uh, it's a new construct for the army. It's taking on a role that previously we'd only pulled together ad hoc forces to be able to do that sort of thing. And what we've done is we've professionalised it. We've created a regiment with four battalions, all of which are capable of operating independently at reach to advance the UK's national interests wherever they may be needed in the world. What are the next steps for 60? We've got a number of capability development paths in play. We're building more in terms of the training that we put our people through. We're getting new capabilities, new equipment. We're bringing in new methods of analysing, for example, big data so that we can start to play in the information domain even more than we are already uh, in a way that's very responsive to changing world situations. Ukraine has undoubtedly focused minds, particularly in the information battle that we've seen come from all sides there. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you only have to look at what's been going on around the world over the last couple of months to see how the information environment is just dominating Everyone, when they go home at the end of the day, is seeing it on their screens right in front of them. They're seeing information. They're seeing misinformation, disinformation. They're seeing a lot of things play out in front of them. And there is a battle of the narrative going on right now. And we've got a part to play in that. Got 77 Brigade, of course, an integral part of what's going on here. Been around for some time. There was some criticism, particularly in the press initially when it came along, Twitter troops, all this sort of stuff. But with what we're all seeing now, has... The presence of that unit in particular, um, has defence more sort of warmly embraced its presence? So 77 Brigade has been growing its capability uh, and enhancing its sophistication enormously over the years since it was first brought into being. It brings together specialists from across the army and across defence, uh, all of whom bring particular skills that enable us to uh, actively shape the way people think about what is going on in the world. And, you know, we are very much here to ensure that people know and understand what is going on and that we are able to ensure that our troops aren't put at a disadvantage because of, for example, disinformation being put out by our adversaries. Major General Jess Strickland talking to Tim Cooper there. Well, let's get some final thoughts from Professor Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, these NATO talks, do you think they're likely to achieve much? Oh, well, I think they will um, set the tone because it isn't just the NATO talks themselves. The G7 is meeting today and uh, the justice ministers from a range of countries are in The Hague talking about war crimes. So I think there's a, a series of things going on in the next uh, 36 hours will set the tone of the Western world for the way it's going to deal with this crisis and the reactions it may be prepared to take as Putin doubles down and keeps on, as it were, burning bridges behind him, which is what he's doing. Mm, and where are we at with ceasefires and talks? Are there any signs of a lull in the conflict? Not really. I think conflicts always go in, in peaks and troughs, partly because human nature and flesh, and flesh and blood can only do so much. And so what we see is that the, the battlefront on, in three areas is quite active in, in a couple of cases and, and is static in others. <clears throat> I don't think there's much chance of any negotiated settlement soon. Any ceasefire, I think, will be broken by both sides because they both want uh, to reposition themselves uh, on the ground. Um, so I think the, all that the West can do is back 
whatever the Ukrainian government wants. That, that is, if they want to go for talks, then we support them. If they won't talk, we support the fact that they don't talk. At the moment, what we should do is just is back their judgment as to what is best for them. And many people have been talking about the fear of the use <clears throat> of chemical weapons. Do you expect President Putin to change his tactics? Well, it's on the horizon because he's got nowhere else to go. If he's, he, they, they are surrounding cities they're not in a position to take. If at some point he feels that he has to occupy those cities, then the only way he's likely to be able to do it is by using chemical elements. And that will be another threshold crossed. And the West will then have to decide, if it hasn't already privately decided, what it will do in that event, because that will be the biggest threshold so far that's been crossed, because chemicals, whatever they're, however inefficient they are as a, as a weapon, they are a weapon of mass destruction. And so President Putin will have stepped into the WMD field if he does use chemicals. Mm. There are talks today to say NATO should not be saying what it won't do, but actually saying what it should do, will do. Yeah, I mean, deterrence is all about preserving an element of uncertainty. If you say exactly what you will do, that might have some effect, but also it gives the other side a chance to think about how to counteract it. So it's, a, it's an, an interesting conundrum how much you say and how much you keep under wraps, as it were. But I think the, the important thing for NATO is that whatever it comes up with today, it has, it has got to be believed. And we ourselves have got to believe it because this is emerging after a month of war. This is emerging as the defining conflict of our era it's not just an inconvenience it's defining because look at the countries that are on the fence you know china is on the fence about this india is on the fence brazil is on the fence pakistan is on the fence a lot of african states are, are saying we don't care who wins it's not it's not, neither here nor there to us this is this has become a real conflict between the autocratic world and the democratic world it will define our era and so what is said today at nato will be it will be very very important that it is believed both by everybody else and by ourselves michael clark thank you and my thanks to all of our guests we're back with another bfbs sit rep next thursday you can stay up to date between now and then on our news website forces.net and you can catch up with past programs at bfbs.com slash sit rep where you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast for now though from me kate chabot thank you for listening and goodbye 